What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Take a pause from your to-do list with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hey, I'm Christina Wallace. And I'm Kate Scott Campbell. And you're listening to The Limit Does Not Exist. A podcast for human Venn diagrams. Coming at you every single Monday. And hosted by us. Did it ever occur to you that J.S. Bach was a total technology nerd? You could say he was a 16th century early adopter. We're talking with Dan Tepfer, a pianist and composer who may very well change what you previously thought about Bach, as well as jazz music, computer programming, and many other things. We knew Dan was destined for the show when a French journalist described him as one who refuses to set himself limits. See, that's destiny right there. That is destiny. One of his musical projects involves composing and improvising using algorithms. He literally co-writes pieces with a computer program. He did his undergraduate degree in astrophysics and his master's in jazz piano, and he sees the logic and the creativity in both science and music. Dan tells us how he ultimately discovered that music would be his primary pursuit, and he discusses lots of really cool things, such as how constraints give freedom a 
frame. He also gives great advice for figuring out what you want to do with your life. Hint, take a look at what you fall asleep reading every night. I wonder what Bach fell asleep reading at night. Hmm. I guess we'll never know. Anyway, shall we jump in, Christina? (laughs) I think we should. (laughs) Let's do it. Hey, Christina. Hey, Kate. Hi, Dan. Hi. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Thank you. (laughs) Didn't expect that, did you? I was just drinking some coffee. It's all good. You passed the first test. You did your open. Um, Oh, my gosh. Dan, you are somewhere I have never been before, which is inside of Christina's apartment. (laughs) Is that true? It's true. Oh, my gosh. I haven't even seen photos. It's, I mean, yeah, I'm so jealous. We're going to have to do a FaceTime tour one of these days. Oh, my gosh. I feel like you're such a big part of my life, Kate. I know. had you over. I know. And you have been over to mine. So this needs to be, yeah, this needs to, we need to reciprocate. (laughs) Well, Dan, you have been in all kinds of places around the world, which we need to talk about. Uh, But before we do that, Christina, we were going to uh, lightly jump in on a really cool article that you found. Yeah. So I came across this. um, I had like four or five friends tweeted out before I finally opened my Sunday New York Times and realized it was by show favorite Adam Grant. Show fave. um, Who wrote this piece called Kids, Would You Please Start Fighting? Which I was like, (laughs) okay, I will read that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the crux of it, I mean, it's really interesting because you you think about creativity, um, you think about one of the cardinal rules of brainstorming, which he mentions, uh, and that's withhold criticism. It's sort of like all ideas are welcome here. We don't want to be too critical or people will shut down. Mm -hmm. And he points out that a lot of the research says that's just not true. You have to learn how to be critical, to have an argument, not a fight, not like anger blowing up, but as they say, how to get hot without getting mad. Mm-hmm. Um, and that he, his fear is that the way a lot of kids uh, are being raised, certainly how, how he is seeing this as a parent himself, um, is that these kids are being emphasized to like, oh, let's just all get along. Uh, but the research shows that highly creative adults grow up in families full of tension or disagreements um, or just what they call wobbly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just thought that was really interesting. I certainly came from a wobbly family mm-hmm, and uh, and I just wanted to, to get your thoughts and maybe Dan's as well. I'm like, does that sound true based on your experience? And like, how do you, how do you think about teaching kids to be able to disagree without being disagreeable, I guess? Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting article and I was feeling a bit disagreeable with it for the first part, <laughs> but probably just because I was affected by its subject matter. Um, I too grew up in a wobbly family and Interestingly enough, I was kind of the kid who, when my parents were fighting, I would sit in my closet and like think of solutions to to like fix their fight, which is like I don't know what that says about me, but yeah, I was like very very much an empath from a young age. Um, But what I took away from the article that I really liked is really just like the permission to disagree, like Mm. and the fact that if you disagree with somebody, particularly if you frame it in the right way, it is not a deal breaker. Christina, you made such a great point about the difference between an argument and a fight. There is really an art to disagreement, mm-hmm. right? And in sort of at the end of the article, he lays out um, a few sort of bullet points for arguing in a way that is going to be collaborative and not competitive 
combative, maybe, mm-hmm. right? Because so, I do believe in a collaborative setting. It really is important to have a foundation of trust, I've found, so that you can you know, argue and discuss on top of that. I have find that if I'm sure. in collaboration, but it's how like, he, he frames it yeah. as courteous conflict. Right, right. And I love that point that he made that's argue as if you're right, but listen as if you're wrong. I thought that was a really interesting way yeah, to address. I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. And, um, acknowledging the learning throughout the argument, I thought is really great too, you know? Um, But to me, the biggest takeaway was to see like, yeah, it is okay to disagree. And by the way, like there's ways to do that. And that's only going to build, um, you know, dynamism and just, just more, more interesting, complex stuff and conversations. And my goodness, we need that all the time. Sure. Yeah. But it, like, it's such a strange idea to me that it could possibly not be okay to disagree. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, I, 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 I maybe have a slightly different perspective on this because I grew up in an extremely peaceful family. Um, mm. I've, I've realized um, as I've grown older that it was actually maybe uniquely peaceful or, or on the extreme, ed, the extreme kind of tale of how peaceful family can be. There are virtually never any arguments. But uh, it's a family of scientists, and we're disagreeing all the time. But it's mm-hmm. never personal because we're disagreeing about, you know, um, we're not even disagreeing. All, what we're really trying to do is together uh, arrive at some kind of truth. And if somebody else has something to offer on the way there uh, to enlighten us, that's wonderful. And that's all we ask. And and it's been a constant fight for me uh, realizing throughout my life that, that's not actually normal and <laughs> and it's no. so strange to me that it's not and it's so strange to me that we would take it so personally when somebody disagrees with us i mean you know for me if somebody disagrees with me it's it's like this wonderful opportunity to possibly learn something mm. and you know if if everybody's engaging in good faith it's also an opportunity for them to possibly learn something and and ultimately we're doing what humans are so good at which is that we are together becoming greater than the two of us separately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just the best thing. I, I just, the whole, the whole even premise of it being not okay to disagree is so absurd to me. Although I, I think there's an important caveat, which is what are we disagreeing about? Are we disagreeing about facts and is the question resolvable or are we just kind of throwing feelings out there? Um, because ultimately there's like two categories of truth, right? There's subjective truth and objective truth. And the truth is, <laughs> uh, and I think this is an objective truth, it's really interesting to argue and disagree about objective truths, but there's absolutely no point in arguing about subjective truths. And I, I think in many ways, all the strife in the world arises from an, an inability to tell the difference between those two things. That is hmm. basically a summary of our entire political system right now. Yeah, and, and I think what you brought up about the necessity for trust mm-hmm. uh, in order to have any kind of constructive debate. That's really essential. And that's what has completely broken down uh, in our current political scene. On the creative collaboration side, if I'm collaborating with somebody, which I do constantly, I will often say, particularly if it's somebody that I've just met, I'll say like, I'll like inform them about some things about me. I'll be like, okay, this is something I don't take personally at all. I do find that I need to say that to people so that they feel comfortable with saying, hmm, I don't really agree with this mm. because I do find that so many people I work with will sort of bite their tongue or hold back just sort of as a general 
effect of, of whatever, of how they were brought up or whatever. So I do That's think... That's certainly true in the business world. Yeah. I mean, I came in from a background in math and theater where, like, you have to have disagreements and conversations in the rehearsal room or while you're, you know, putting something together. Otherwise, why are you all in the room together? And I, I show up into the business world. And I'm like, I don't think that's right. But, you know, let's let's try to find a way around that or like, like let's discuss what's at the crux of that. And uh, I found out later that I was sort of seen as a bit of a bull in a china shop because in, in one particular environment and job that I had, we, we just don't disagree, at least to other people's faces You can mm. do a behind, you know, you can do kind of a sidebar conversation. But like it was seen as disrespectful to challenge someone else. Um, in, you know, the facts of the matter. And uh, I, I think I'm with you on this, Kate, that it sort of surprised me because, you know, I certainly came from a family that, mm -hmm. that loved to debate. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, that was a, a piece of training I took with me all the way through uh, through undergrad and kind of my first career in the arts. So, yeah, I, I certainly should hope that as we're thinking about kids, we're not only making them sing Kumbaya and hold hands and agree with everyone but actually be able to have constructive debates. There's a gender thing here too, right? Mm. Um, I mean, I, I've read a, at least one, I think more uh, articles about how, you know, when a woman disagrees, especially in a business setting, she tends to be perceived as being much more aggressive than if a man does the exact same thing. Well, that's true. And if I had $10,000 for every time I had aggressive in a, an annual review, huh. I would have paid off my student loans long ago. <laughs> wow. <laughs> jump to talking about Dan's background because I yes. think it's absolutely fascinating. You know, you brought it up a little bit uh, and now I'm just even more intrigued to understand about how you grew up and how you ended up on the path you're on. Your mom was an opera singer, your father a biologist, you grew up in Paris, and then you went to undergrad in the UK to study astrophysics. And then you came to the US to get a master's in jazz piano and that's the path you're on. So give us a little bit more color on that. What was your childhood like and how did you discover these interests in jazz and astrophysics and how did you decide which to pursue hmm yeah it's it's so um i don't get to talk about my childhood all that often this is fun uh <laughs> I, I think maybe one of the key things about how i grew up is uh first of all i had american parents they're from oregon hmm. but who were living in paris um so already i was a little bit like I was in a kind of a foreign land, even though, you know, I grew up in France speaking French and I went to all all my schooling in France was in public schools. But still, um, there's a, already a sense of, of foreign culture right there. Mm -hmm. And then um, on top of that, my parents uh, never had a TV. Uh, wow. And, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't have uh, Internet either, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, internet started coming in in my early teens. Mm -hmm. uh, so as a result, I just... Um, also, I'm an only child. Wow. So if, if you only combine, child, no TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You must have read a lot. You must be so, very yeah. good at, 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 at occupying yourself, yeah? At, at, at like self-entertainment. Well, you know, one thing I realized, um, I think just it came, this came to me like maybe in the past year when I, while I was practicing piano, um, I really believe strongly that real creativity comes from boredom. Hmm. Mm. I think creativity is the body's response to boredom. You know, you see it with kids all the time, right? It's like they're bo if they're bored, they don't have a TV, they don't have the internet or whatever. They come up with something and it's mm -hmm. kind of amazingly creative, you know. <laughs> uh, 
so I think I, I did a lot of that as a kid. I also read a lot, but also my dad um, spent a lot of time with me because my mom, as an opera singer, was usually working in the evenings. Uh, but my dad and I would would hang around and like, you know, fix broken things or <laughs> come up with some kind of um, you know construction project or, um, you know, it, it was always thinking back on it, it, it was a pretty a pretty. A lovely child that I had um, that was pretty uncolored by mass uh, culture. Hmm. Uh, so it makes me, you know, a total weirdo. I <laughs> uh, kind of encounter mass culture as, as a almost like a anthropologist or something, you know, I'm very distant from it. Um, but it was, a, it was a happy childhood for sure, and I think I was very much encouraged to um, to just you know, make things and fool around and I, I love that. You know, it's interesting, Dan, we did have a television in my house, but we only could like watch it for like an hour a week or something, an hour or two a week. We really, TV was really like off limits. Cool. Yeah. Like it was like not very much. So like we would watch like Nick at night and stuff with my parents and things like that. But otherwise, like I was really out of the loop with my classmates in terms of like what mm. was on TV. And I do find that like, I mean, as a kid, I was constantly just like writing and making stuff because like that's sort of was in my household too and I find that as an adult I'm constantly like returning to that version of myself who didn't have screens going crazy you know like didn't have all this other outside stimuli and was just like making stuff from what was there you know the, I think that's really valuable point is a relevant one because I, I look <clears throat> at how little I'm bored these mm, days right right uh, because you know even the five minutes that I'm waiting for a friend to meet me for dinner or um, you know, I'm, I'm on the train and now there's, uh, internet access down on, underneath oh, on the subway. Is. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. That, like you know, the prime hours or minutes where I used to kind of let my mind wander and, and maybe make connections or come up with a new idea can now be filled should I choose to, mm-hmm. um, with distraction. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's even worse than that. It's, they are going to be filled mm if you don't make the active choice mm-hmm. not to fill them, like the, the, yeah. the technology has invaded our lives to such an extent that it's actually a constant choosing mm-hmm. against it. And that's where it's, it's really a little perverse, I think, Absolutely. because the temptation is so strong, you know, and, and, you know, there are all these studies that show that we only have a limited amount of willpower right. per day. And right. I use it to not eat chocolate and therefore, <laughs> and, then it's, and then it's gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh! I mean, I I, I love what you just said, Kate. Um, Mm. I'd be actually interested to know how much effort that takes from you, because uh, for me, I've realized that um, you know the the screen addiction is a strange kind of addiction because it's definitely an addiction. But when I take it away entirely, so for example, I've been going to Cuba to study percussion, and my phone doesn't even work there. Oh, and wow. to get any kind of internet, I need to go to like a hotel and pay twelve dollars an hour for <laughs> like the world's slowest internet. So I'm basically <laughs> completely disconnected for you know two or three weeks mm. um, at a time. Or, or last summer, I, I um, had a, a residency at the McDowell Colony, which is this really great artist colony in New Hampshire. Uh, also, pretty much disconnected for five weeks. Mm. Um, I find that when I take that the screen addiction away, or when I take the screen away, 
I have no withdrawal whatsoever. I'm super happy. Like yes. Yes. I have no withdrawal. I do there too. Absolutely nothing. It's not 100%. like if I stop coffee and I get headaches. There's nothing. I'm right. I'm psyched. There's I like a relief. Great. Yeah. It, relief. That's exactly what it is. It's a feeling of relief. So it's very strange that we have this thing in our lives that should have so much power over us, mm-hmm. and yet. When we don't have it, we don't miss it at all. <laughs> I mean, that's I pretty know. weird. I've never thought of it like that. It's so true. Even today I was in a yoga class and I had this actual thought of being so grateful to have an hour with a phone just gone. You know, like there there was gratitude. Um, but but Dan, I'm so curious, knowing that you studied astrophysics um, at university, how did you discover, um, you certainly want to talk about jazz, how did you discover your interest in astrophysics, really in both, but particularly why did you choose that science route for undergrad, um, for your undergraduate degree, rather than a, a conservatory for jazz? I mean, yeah, actually, in many ways, I'm I'm very unoriginal. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it's true. Uh, my 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 family is quite scientific. Uh, my dad's a biologist. His brother is also a biologist. My grandfather is a biologist. <laughs> um, and that's on my dad's side. And then... Um, on my mom's side, uh, my grandfather was a jazz pianist on the West Coast, oh. uh, and my mom is an opera singer. So, so you know, I, I literally Good dueling DNA. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, I literally grew up in a family where science and music were the two dominant mm. um, forces, and and those mm-hmm. are the two that I took on because I really love both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how did I come across astrophysics? Um, I just remember from a very young age having that sense of wonder uh, with, uh, you know, the infinity of the universe. And um, I read A Brief History of Time in my early teens and and then read other books about uh, about astrophysics and just always thought it was the most fascinating thing ever. And and I still feel that way. I just absolutely love it. Um, Mm. Just it does something to my sense of wonder. Mm. That is so uh, exciting, um, and and I always love science as, as an approach to uh, to the discovery of truth. You know, and kind of connects with what we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so it felt pretty natural to uh, to want to study it. Um, and if I was going to study science, it was going to be astrophysics because that's just what I love the most. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I started uh, playing the piano when I was six, and I did the whole conservatory system in, in France growing up. Uh, so I was studying classical, but I always felt very much like a jazz pianist. That's how I identified, mm. uh, I guess, because of my grandfather's influence. And I, I used to, you know, I, I would listen to a lot of jazz and, and just spend hours kind of recreating it as as best I could at the piano. Um, so that was, so, so music and, and, and improvisation in particular is something that just I spent tons of time on um, all through my childhood and, and teens. And what I really wanted to do was a double degree in astrophysics and music. Um, mm. And um, I was actually going to go to college uh, in the U.S. Um, I was going to go to Columbia. And basically, my parents f- realized they couldn't afford it to, to send me there. Mm. Uh, so that's why I ended up going to the U.K. And uh, you can't really do double degrees there. Mm. So I did my undergrad in, in astrophysics just because... You're admitted to a specific program in the UK, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. you apply hmm. to. Yeah. yeah, there's, there's, you're not doing liberal arts. So you have to know at like 16 or 17 yeah. what you're going to do. So yeah. anyway, I, I, I did a, a degree in astrophysics uh, and did a ton of music on the side, you know, thinking that 
that would be a lot more practical than doing a degree in music and doing a ton of astrophysics on the side. <laughs> Fair point. I support that choice. <laughs> I love jazz. I'm, I'm sure I've talked about my love for it on, on our show already. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah. because it's something that I just love so much. <laughs> and so hearing you improvising as a child and discovering jazz as a child, uh, that's just remarkable. I, I didn't, you know, really even know jazz was a much about it until I was, you know, sort of adult age. Um, mm. But that's just incredible. Just the idea of you improvising and sort of exploring in that way at a young age, I think would just be, you know, very, just very profound, you know, on, on your continued approach to music. Yeah. You know, uh, I feel really lucky in many ways in that regard because I think I had a space uh, of, of real innocence with regards to this music that um, can be hard to get if, for example, like many of my peers, you started in a jazz program, you know, relatively young and you were kind of told how it works. Mm. Uh, in my case, I, I had really many years to just fool around and, and figure out my <laughs> own way of thinking about it. Yeah. Um, and you know, I mean, you, you learn a lot slower when you're when you're doing it that way, but you also get to have this feeling of ownership um, mm. that uh, that's kind of nice, uh, even though it, it's totally false. <laughs> you know, you as a kid, I remember feeling like I'd really invented a ton of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> totally, that's huge. You know, to continue to be a a creator in your in your life. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great tasting all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So what was that shift like then when you went from your astrophysics undergrad to to your master's to focusing on on jazz piano? How did sort of your relationship to astrophysics shift as you went into your master's degree? Well, I remember having this interesting conversation with a friend of mine in my undergrad uh, when, when I was doing physics. Uh, his name is Julian, and um, he had been a, you know, kind of elite classical pianist and had decided that it was just he wasn't quite good enough even though he was really like in the elite uh it was just not just felt like he was trying for the olympics and he wasn't quite making the cut you know Mm. and so then he decided to uh do physics and and actually he's gone on to, to have a really good career in physics um and we were talking the thing, the thing is that when we were studying um, physics, we'd have you know these study sessions together, and we felt like we were probably on on a similar level in terms of our ability to understand things. But the, mm. there was this key difference, which is that he would fall asleep at night reading physics textbooks, and I would fall asleep at night reading music textbooks. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. You know, which ultimately, yeah. like that, is so much more important than any kind of innate talent, right? It, it's mm. really just the 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 random or who knows if it's random but anyway that that fact of what you just happen to be drawn to um so so in other words when i went from doing my degree in astrophysics to my degree in in music it was just such a breath of fresh air um Mm. one of the 
I mean, and I love the astrophysics, but the, the truth is I love the results of astrophysics. Uh, I love reading about it. I love knowing about it, but I, I don't feel an intense visceral need to be sitting at a computer all day um, doing it. Mm-hmm. Whereas I just derive really profound visceral pleasure from making music and not only making the music, not only performing the music, but, but practicing music is, mm. is uh, just really like one of the best things I can do with my time for myself. So, you know, being suddenly in an environment where that's all that was asked of me was, um, was pretty great. At the same time, I had a lot of catching up to do because I'd never really, I mean, I'd taken some lessons as a teenager, but only a few in jazz. Uh, so really most of my knowledge was home baked. And, um, so I had a lot of kind of holes to fill in my knowledge and, um, it was really exciting. Um, that's such an an interesting and important thing to understand about yourself. Yeah. Like what do I enjoy practicing and kind of doing all day long? Not totally. just the results of, but I enjoy the process of. Yes. Yeah. I, I think I was the exact opposite. I did you know, however many 15, 16 years of classical piano and I loved performing mm-hmm. and I hated the six hours I was by myself in a practice mm. room all day long. You really hated it, huh? I did. It was just not my huh. jam. Wow. And whereas like you give me six hours worth of math problems Oh my God. Just like mm. give me a piece of paper and a pencil and some, some math challenges. And I could do that for hours. Mm. Mm. And it was, it was a huge relief at boarding school when I realized that I didn't want to be a pianist and that that was okay. And I think it was a big relief to my teacher as well, that he wasn't going to have to tell me that. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So that's wait, incredible. In addition to astrophysics and jazz, you also write computer programs and you actually use this as part of your music making. Mm-hmm. How did you get into programming? Was that through astrophysics? or was It actually that wasn't at all. Uh, we did like the world's most rudimentary programming in my astrophysics uh, degree. Um, no, I, I, um, I think it all started, my, my dad, as I said earlier, was a biologist, uh, and, and he brought back a Mac Plus. So, you know, this is like <laughs> the first, the, the, almost the first Apple Macintosh uh, wow. from 1984 um, with, let's see, I think it was 8 megahertz was the, was oh the processor. Oh, my gosh. Did it have like the green and black screen yet, or was, did it predate that? Uh, actually, it postdates the green and black screen. Oh, the green nice. black screen, screen is the Apple II. Oh, yes, exactly. That's uh, what I'm thinking and, of. <laughs> and the Macintosh was black and white. Oh, yeah. Oh, I remember yeah. those. Yes. But the Macintosh was the first to have the first consumer computer to have a, a, a graphical interface, mm-hmm. you know, with folders and yeah. dialogues and. Yes, I remember uh, learning on anyway, one of those. My, my dad <laughs> brought brought one of those home, and there was a program on there called HyperCard. Oh my gosh! Yes. <laughs> so HyperCard was, um, in some ways, I, I guess, you know, a predecessor to the web, I guess, because it's really rooted in hyperlinks. Um, you could make these kind of cards, what they called cards. So they were kind of like a, a page. And then you could link between pages with things that you could click on. So so it's just like the web, except that it wasn't connected to a network. It was all just on your on your computer. Mm-hmm. And in addition to being able to do that, which was really pretty basic and like a kid could make stuff, uh, it had um, a really rudimentary programming language, hmm. uh, which I the, you know, slowly got into. I, I don't even know how I got into it because my dad's not a programmer. Um, I don't know how it happened, but I, I've always been a, 
There must be somebody. You were an only child. I was only child. <laughs> yes. Exactly. I think that's probably what happened. <laughs> anyway, I got into that. And then in my teens, um, I started programming in basic. And then I, I got a book on C um, and started programming in C in my mid mid to late teens. Uh, and this was such a different time, you know, in the 90s. I mean, I was born in 82. So in the in the 90s, you know, nowadays I, I program and if I have a question about anything or something's not working, I just search for it and immediately get the answer. And yeah. back then it was, wasn't like that at all. Like you were learning out of books. There was information online, but it was it was hard to find. Plus, your modems were unbelievably slow. It was just really different. Mm-hmm. Um, so and I remember, you know, puzzling over bugs and problems in my programs for days uh, that I probably could resolve really quickly now just just by uh, getting other people's answers um so anyway yeah i got into programming my teens and i just always loved math always loved um thinking about things in a scientific way so programming felt really deeply creative to me uh it was just you know it's so powerful like you're, you're commanding this army of of uh, servants or something you know it's, it's like, <laughs> Get the computer to do what you want. I mean, it's an amazing <laughs> feeling as a kid. Uh, I remember just feeling. Yeah, I, I think I think as a kid, you 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 don't control very much in yeah. your life, you know. Yeah. And and yeah. if you do control something, it's usually something that is limited by your own power. So, sure. if you play a sport, or you know, if you build a something out of Lego, you know, you're very limited by the amount of Legos you have and and your own fingers and things like that. And and um programming it's like you're in complete control you can do whatever the hell you want and it feels totally limitless hmm. it's really an amazing feeling i remember that very much so so i i just kind of never stopped coding and I, I did it entirely for my own pleasure um and actually kind of dropped it when i went to when i was doing my my masters in music because it was just i was working so hard on music all the time but it crept back in because i was studying with uh, this kind of legendary teacher in in Boston called Charlie Banakis and he his way of teaching was very exercise based Mm. Um, and he would give you exercises where you kind of needed another person to to do the exercise with you Um, one one, an an example of an exercise like that would be an ear training exercise where the other person would have to play you a certain number of notes simultaneously and you would have to guess what they are well hopefully not guess but say what they are (laughs) Uh, it would check you and you know check the said the right notes and, and he said well if you don't have another person you can just record yourself playing a bunch of chords on the piano and then um like literally on a cassette tape <laughs> and then listen to that and guess but i could always remember what chords i played right so then i was it had dawned on me that i could just write a computer program to do that and then i started writing computer programs for virtually every exercise that he gave me um and i've since written apps uh taught myself uh, self-objective c in my 20s and I wrote apps for iPhone to do the same thing. Um, wow. So that's how it crept back in. And 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 then in my kind of late 20s, I started making um, actual music with it. Mm. Um, and that started with with uh, me procrastinating from writing a piece for, for Nanette, for Lee Konitz, who's this um, jazz legend that I've been playing with for 10 years. Mm. I was, I don't know, really severely procrastinating for some reason. <laughs> and I was fiddling around on the web and I came across processing, which mm-hmm. is this, you guys probably know, it's yeah. really fantastic. I don't know what program. that is. It's a program. It's a programming environment that mm. uh, is, it's basically Java, but it's, a, it's this veneer over Java where you don't really have to worry about anything annoying, like any, you know, anything like finicky in programming that yeah. where you have to, 
whatever, do garbage collection or, you know, anything kind of memory management wise or, mm-hmm. uh, and you can mm-hmm. really just create, uh, a 3d environment or whatever very quickly. Uh, so I came across that and I, I started, um, writing programs, uh, and, and, uh, doing fractal stuff. And then I thought, okay, I could, I could try to make music out of the fractal. I think somehow, somehow I was hoping that I could write a program that would write the piece for me that I was supposed <laughs> to write. I've never had a, a creative block quite like that one, but, uh, mm. but anyway, that was, that was really the return of programming for me as a creative thing, uh, as a serious creative thing in my music was, was I wrote this program that, that makes a tree fractal and actually generates music from it. And it ended up being an orchestra piece uh, mm. a couple years later. I think it's so fascinating because if you think about like player pianos they've been around since the like 1850s 1860s and then yamaha introduced this thing the disc clavier in like the 80s that was super cool at the time uh (laughs) where you could put pre-recorded music in the you know in the piano with a a cd drive or whatever and the piano plays it for you yeah or you know you've seen it at like airports or slightly fancy restaurants who don't want to pay for a pianist anymore um often out of tune uh, but you you kind of took it up a notch and you you use algorithms to sort of, as you I think you said in an NPR interview, you're not writing a piece, you're writing how the piece works. So you write these algorithms to define rules and then you play along with the algorithm running. And so it's almost like you're playing in a duet with the computer. Uh, how did that occur to you? And, and sort of how do you use that, those rules or those algorithms you're writing as as your composing partner how do you think about that in in that body of work that you've created i mean that's such a there's so much to say about that because <laughs> uh you know one 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 place to start is is just the history of of music and mm. how important rules and algorithms are to the entire history mm. of music mm. uh, another place to start is just um you know the fact that the disclavier is really just a midi instrument mm. uh midi being the protocol that computers use to speak to each other about music mm-hmm. are uh, one of the protocols, the dominant one. Um, and so it's this pretty amazing intersection of um, acoustic sound and, you know, acoustic sound, which to me is like an ancient organic thing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The intersection of that with uh, very high technology um, and digital technology, which is just so modern. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I guess just on that on that topic, um, I you know had gotten back into programming creative things and and specifically making algorithmic music you know music that is developed that is written by a set of rules in the computer, mm-hmm. uh, and then I um, became a Yamaha artist uh, in 2010 because I was making a record where I play the Goldberg Variations, mm-hmm. uh, this you know masterpiece by. Bach mm-hmm. and follow each one of those variations with an improvised imp, an improvised response. Hmm. Oh, uh, I love that. Um, oh, no pressure. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. <laughs> My goodness. On Bach. No, no, no. I mean, <laughs> converse with Bach more yeah. like it. <laughs> it's really essential for me in that project to label it 
a reaction rather than yes. in any way a competition. I mean, you know, <laughs> yes. there, there's no there's no fighting with Bach, but not <laughs> that. But like it was it was really essential to me to respond in my own voice. I love that. Mm-hmm. So I, I think you know, this is something that's very dear and important to me in art. I think um, we're all looking at the past when we make art. You know, we wouldn't be in a position to do anything without the past. We maybe mm-hmm. would have the wherewithal to find a cave but we probably wouldn't even have the wherewithal to make a drawing on the on the walls of the cave you know uh-huh. so we're always looking at the past as artists and, yeah. and what makes us artists is the fact that we are looking at the past through a particular prism which is just our way of seeing things and i think that prism is interesting i i think that what that's what is interesting about art so for me in that project with bach it's all about what is my prism? What do I hear inside myself when I hear Bach and mm. when I play Bach? What is my reaction? What is my prism? Beautiful. Uh, so you know what I'm saying. It's not. Yeah. It's not a competition anyway. It's it's a reaction. It's sure. a dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, I became a Yamaha artist, and and um, they have this great space in Manhattan uh, where I spent many hours making that record, and I, I made a number of records there since then. And there's all these disclavers hanging around these you know amazing concert grand pianos really just beautiful instruments that also had this capacity to to play you know recorded music i thought um and it took me a while to realize they can take real-time input you can just send them data and they'll play it right away so that data doesn't have to be pre-planned or anything mm-hmm. uh, so it actually the way that started was that I brought in the algorithm I, I mentioned a little earlier, which is uh, where I'm taking a tree fractal and converting each one of the notes on the tree into notes. Mm-hmm. And I brought it in because I wanted to hear how it would be on the piano, and I was running it in the piano, and then it just kind of dawned on me, wait a minute. You know, this I could change this right now, and the piano would change it mm-hmm. right away. It seems so obvious now, but at the time it was like, it was kind of a mind-blowing. <laughs> Yeah. And so that realized because when I play something on the piano, that information is sent into the computer in real time. Mm-hmm. I could be writing programs that just react to whatever I play at the piano and then mm-hmm. immediately send that reaction into the piano for it to play. So the project that I've been working on um, is one where all the sound that you hear is produced by an acoustic piano. Mm-hmm. So we get that kind of magical thing that acoustic instruments have Mm -hmm. but it's like this very highly uh digital algorithmic thing where um everything that i improvise gets responded to and and kind of augmented by the computer that's so incredible just hearing you talking about it my mind naturally is sort of trying to to picture it. And uh, another great thing that you've done is, is that along with these sort of computer-aided compositions, you've created visualizations to help the audience understand what part you're playing and what part the computer is contributing to. So what what made you decide to add visualizations to the experience and and what kind of feedback have you, have you gotten uh, about them from your audience? Hmm. Yeah, you know, this is really, this is a fun discussion we're having for me because um, (laughs) I think this is the first time that I've spoken about this in the context of also having spoken about my childhood and Mm. and how I got into programming. Because one thing I didn't mention earlier is that er everything I was programming in my teens was visual. Mm. I just absolutely loved programming visual stuff. So I wrote 3D renderers. That was like my big obsession was writing a 3D renderer in my teens. Oh, wow. Um, 
and it like made kind of 3D games, you know, where everything was line art. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, I also uh, I made um, rudimentary algorithmic art where I would, would just have lines, um, you know, following mathematical equations and things like that and making mm-hmm. pictures that are that I found really beautiful. And actually, I posted a few on my blog uh, a few years ago, uh, some of those pictures that I made in my teens. Awesome. Um, so that was totally my focus with the programming um, until like my late 20s. It was all visual for me. And, and, you know, this is anytime anybody asks me about programming and, you know, tells me they want to get into it, I always mm-hmm. say, uh, and this is where the processing programming environment is so strong. Hmm. Um, I always say, make some pretty pictures because <laughs> it's just so immediately rewarding. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just it's 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 amazing what mm. you can do with just a few lines of code with visuals and and computer programming. So here I am, you know, um, more than a decade later, uh, making these programs that are interacting with me musically. And then it dawns on me that um, I have all this data in the computer. I, I know every note that I'm playing. Not only do I know what the note is, I also know exactly how uh, strongly it's been struck. Uh, I know how long it's being held. Um, and I also know every note that the computer is generating. Mm. And not only that, but I know the structure of it because the computer is generating its own structure. So if it's responding you know, in multiple layers, I can separate out all those layers. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that, but I know what the rule of the algorithm that I'm playing with is mm. at any one time. So I can represent that visually. Um, and, you know, it just seemed like it's one of the things where, uh, to me, it would have been criminal not to do it because mm. it just sounds so fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, totally. so this is actually pretty new. I, I just started writing those programs that generate the visuals, um, like in, I think it was April of this year. Mm. Um, and and that's been really rewarding. And I think it's taken the project um, at a performance level really into another realm mm. um, because, you know, we're all so visually oriented. I think we always have been, but I think our culture is even more visually oriented than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, but conversely to that, um, it's very dangerous to, inter- to introduce uh, visuals with music. And many composers have, have kind of fallen into this trap where, the minute you introduce visuals with the music, the music becomes kind of like film music mm-hmm. and it trivializes the music. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, the solution to that is that if the visuals are incredibly tightly paired to the music and, mm-hmm. and truly are just a, a direct representation of the music, um, then I don't think you really have that problem. Um, so that's really been my goal with visuals is, is to create something that uh, very transparently mm-hmm. reveals the structure of uh, the algorithm that I'm using at any one time. Have you gotten feedback from audience members that they that they understood better what they were listening to, or they appreciated the the structure of what you were doing because of the visuals? I actually have, yeah, uh, a number of people, and I haven't uh, done so many performances of this yet. It's really a pretty new project, but a number of people have come up to me and said. Um, that thanks to the visualizations, mm. they they were they're able to kind of grasp the structure mm. of what I was doing a lot better, mm. and that that's uh, I'm very happy when I hear that. That's awesome. I mean, I can completely see that having seen just a small bit of it in mm. a video that that you have on uh, 
on your website, I think, somewhere. It reminds me of, I wish I could remember the orchestra, but it reminds me of there's an orchestra somewhere in North America that um, completely redesigned what program notes would look like for them. Um, That instead of giving all of the historical background on the composer and the dates that they wrote it in and all this stuff, it was really just based on, and it was meant to be read along or, or, you know, looked at along with the music they were listening to. There was one page per movement of the symphony and they sort of, visually and graphically tried to represent like the oboes are going to come in here and uh-huh. then next you're going to listen for this sound mm-hmm. and the first you know portion of this movement is kind of these three lines that are you know in a round with each other and mm. then like we go to this and, and it just gives you a way to kind of visually understand what you're listening to mm-hmm. and a little bit of a roadmap and you know when they pause it's not the end so don't clap <laughs> and it just it, it it um it just gave i think people who don't have a background in music theory or classical music or whatever it gave them something to to hang their hat on and kind of yeah. hold on to to say like okay i kind of i understand a little bit of what i'm listening to mm-hmm. and it allowed them i think the freedom to just relax and listen Mm. and not have to remember like what era was this written in and what was it inspired by and who were the contemporaries and and kind of all the I think music history is fascinating but I think it can be overwhelming to kind of receive all of that information at once right when you're also trying to just experience the music yeah you know um that sounds like such a cool initiative I I think when musicians hear about that kind of thing, there's probably going to be a portion of them that's going to say, well, but isn't that distracting from the music? You know, aren't, mm-hmm. aren't you just offering eye candy to people and they're not really going to hear the music itself? But I think um, the enemy of art is just like people zoning out mm-hmm. and anything you can do like what you just described. And especially if it's really closely linked to the music, mm-hmm. anything you can do to keep people engaged and just make them pay attention I, yeah. I think is is so valuable and and really that's if, if there's one thing that art has to offer it's it's awareness This reminds me of, Christina, remember a while back we were discussing um, the performance of The Tempest at Royal Shakespeare Company that used AR to bring uh, specifically the character of Ariel to life. And I remember we talked about this because you're right, Dan, that is sort of the first question that comes up, right? Is this going to distract? Is this true to the original form? And I love what I think it was like the, the head of the RSC asked was, what would Shakespeare have used if like he were writing now like and, and putting on plays now like at, at his fingertips and I just thought that was such a neat way to look at it like why not try to continue to open up these pieces of work you know with what we're discovering now well you know what's absolutely certain is that you look at you know these great geniuses that we hail from the past so mm-hmm. you know I actually think of Shakespeare and Bach as very similar and and they're from a, from the similar time too mm-hmm. um they're, they're just these these kind of insanely productive mm-hmm. and yeah. <laughs> uh not only productive but like uh masterful um creators uh and i in in Bach's case i i, I don't I don't know about Shakespeare, but I, I would assume that probably in, in terms of t- stage technology is similar. In Bach's case, he was absolutely a technology nut. Um, mm-hmm. He embraced every new technolo- technological development that came his way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first being 
the organ, which mm-hmm. at the time was probably the most high-tech thing there, there was. Right. And Bach was well-known as an absolute expert of the organ, not only at the musical level, but at the uh, technology level. He, mm-hmm. he fixed them. He um, was asked many times to go evaluate organs um, from the, the technical standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he, you know, at a more abstract level, he was a big champion of the burgeoning equal temperate mo- mm-hmm. temperament movement. Uh, it wasn't quite actual equal temperament at the time, but it was heading that way. Uh, and that's like a huge intellectual jump that people were making around that mm-hmm. time, uh, that if you make certain compromises in your tuning system, it gives you the ability to modulate mm-hmm. to different keys. Hmm. Um, so that's a completely innovative thing that he jumped on. And then at the end of his life, he actually encountered the some really early piano fortes. Um, and he just constantly had this curiosity towards that stuff. So there's absolutely no doubt that if he were alive today, um, he'd be using, you know, every possible form of technology, mm-hmm. you know, which it's, it's always funny to me when people react negatively to, uh, to new tools because, uh, the music or the art or whatever it is that they're conservatively championing. And there's a lot of this in jazz, by the way, mm. that was invented by innovators <laughs> right <laughs> like it's just this is a completely contradictory position to hold you know <laughs> now of course you know anytime you have a new tool there's gonna be a lot of bullshit made with it i mean just by by the nature of it um mm. people are gonna get excited about the novelty of it and right right uh and it's gonna take a minute to for people to really figure out what is the right art to make with mm. this new tool but that's just normal and it's just something to to embrace i think and mm-hmm. and anyway i don't think i don't think we should ever be dark uh, on the tools themselves <laughs> so one last deep philosophical question uh before we head off to the fun lightning round you wrote in the liner notes of your album 11 cages constraints surround freedom and give it a frame be they physical cages or formal structure we choose to create within they challenge us to ask how free can i be from inside this particular cage and I loved that because I think it, at the crux of that is a truth that a lot of people know, which is when you have complete unrelenting freedom, you can feel paralyzed, mm-hmm. right? It's like debilitating. Mm-hmm. The tyranny of choice. Yes. yes. And that, like, constraints or conflict or one thing limiting gives you a jumping off point and it gives you an ability to create around it and sort of imagine freedom inside this particular cage, as you put it. What kind of cage or constraint are you interested in exploring next? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, I guess it's funny. The first thing that brought up for me that question uh, is maybe not a real good answer to it uh, because it's not exactly a cage, but everything is a constraint in some ways. Mm. Uh, One thing I really want to explore is VR Mm -hmm. uh, because in in relation to this project that we've been discussing, um, I'm creating these 3D environments uh, with kind of abstractions of music bouncing around, you know, balls or mm-hmm. or shapes that represent notes or various different approaches. But the point is there's this 3D environment surrounding you. Um, I would really love to be able to go into a concert hall and um, for everyone to get like a Google Cardboard or something like that, mm-hmm. um, have an app running on their phone, um, and then in real time get the data from what I'm playing uh, and be able to 
feel completely enveloped by this um, by this 3D world. Um, part of what inspired that was a concert I went to maybe a year and a half ago. It was a classical concert, a string quartet, uh, and we were entirely in the dark. Oh, wow. And it was really pretty fantastic. Including I mean, the performers? Everyone entirely in the dark. I mean, to the String point... String Quartet was playing in the dark? That's amazing. Here's another constraint. You yeah. know, you restrict our senses in some way, uh, and that changes our experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, is 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 wearing a VR uh, helmet restricting your senses? Uh, I, I, well, it is, obviously, in some mm-hmm. way. I mean, you're still activating your, your visual sense, but... Um, Anyway, that's something that I would really like to explore. Uh, you know, just just kind of as a general response to your question, constraints and rules and particularly algorithms have been really important in music historically for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, there are composers in the Renaissance like Okekim mm-hmm. uh, that wrote these um, long pieces that are that are totally algorithmic in that they can be written in just a few bars. Mm-hmm. The, the essence of them can be written in just a few bars and they're called puzzle pieces because then it becomes like a little puzzle and mm-hmm. the person looking at these few bars has to figure out exactly how they unfold. Mm. Um, and there's no creativity there. It's like literally solving a puzzle, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that's a you know completely process-oriented uh, way of writing a piece of music. Then you look at somebody like Bach and he's always operating within the rules of counterpoint, which are their own set of, of rules. Mm-hmm. And then in addition to that, he imposes uh, rules on himself, like the rules of a canon, you know, depending mm-hmm. on the piece, he'll write a canon or he'll write a fugue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he'll decide to be to start in one key and move to another key. These are constantly these constraints he's setting, he's setting um, for himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that definitely, I mean, I, I just, I can't help but imagine that Bach is sitting there thinking, Oh, isn't this fun? <laughs> it's, like, it's a really tight constraint that I'm finding myself in. Let's see how how much I can kill this, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then you you fast forward to like the 20th century, and one of my favorite composers, Georgi Ligeti. But by the way, this is true of virtually every composer, every mm-hmm. good composer. But one of my favorites, Georgi Ligeti, would would set these pieces in motion that are kind of like a, a big machine. Mm. And it just unfolds, you know, according to these rules. And then he would he would break them sometimes mm-hmm. um, on purpose. Uh, I, th- I think we tend to romanticize uh, music a lot. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I can understand that people would forget that that all sound is rooted in physics and, and literally it, all sound is proportion and vibration mm-hmm. in specific proportion and, and that it's all very mathematical mm-hmm. that's fine we can we don't have to think about that all the time <laughs> but forget that even the basic harmonies that we use all uh, uh, every day mm. uh, come from people who are puzzling over this stuff in a very mathematical way um that that seems it seems a little uh, parasitic. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like we're going around saying, oh, well, I have such strong feelings about the music. And believe me, I love feelings. <laughs> like, you know, it, we need emotional connection on top of everything else. Mm-hmm. And Bach is the poster child for this, right? It's like so spiritual at the same time that it's very algorithmic. Um, we need all these feelings. They're essential. But let's value the fact that it's um, some pretty hardcore rational thinking mm-hmm that underpins all of this when it's well done. I tried to write a very 
20th century style piece when I was, I don't know, third, fourth grade in my music theory classes. Wow. My 12th tone. Uh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> my teacher gave it back to me totally just read everywhere, looked bloody almost. And he <laughs> said, you can break the rules once you learn them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. You have to learn them so that I know this is intentional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, okay, <laughs> noted. I would be remiss to cut this short, but it's time for the lightning round. We're going to ask you some questions, and you have to just give us the answer that pops into your head. You don't have to apologize for it or make excuses, and we will try our best not to ask follow-up questions. It's okay, going to be hard. Fart noises? Yes. Ah! <laughs> Ooh, that would be a lightning round first, and uh, we welcome it. It would. Yeah. Okay, so first up, uh, what are you reading right now? I'm reading a really great book by Ellen Allman, Life in Code. Ooh. Yeah, totally recommend it. She was like an active coder in the 80s and 90s Mm. and just writes incredibly eloquently about not only that whole culture of of being a coder, but also the impact that technology has had and and is continuing to have on our society. Uh, Really recommend it. Excellent. We will add that to our reading list. Kate, over to you. Amazing. Okay. So you have traveled to so many places to perform, Dan. Do you have a, um, what would be your next place that you'd like to travel and or perform that you ha- somewhere you haven't been yet that you would love to go to? Hmm. You know, I was just in the Congo for the first time and did a concert in, in, the, really? in Brazzaville. Um, and God, that was just amazing. Um, just heard some absolutely phenomenal music. So, wow. Um, I definitely want to spend more time in Africa. Um, I, I, I said earlier that you know I, I um, have been studying rhythm in Cuba, mm-hmm. uh, and it was pretty amazing to, to find. I mean, I knew this kind of intellectually, but I, it was really amazing to experience the fact that the rhythms in Congo, in the Congo, are are so similar to the ones I was working on hmm. in Cuba. So I, I definitely want to go back to, to Africa, spend more time there, and, and play with more African musicians. Um, that was really pretty mind opening. That's amazing. And now I also want to go there. Um, okay, question three. What was the last thing that made you go, oh, my God? Interpretation up to Not you. based on Christina's line reading. You can project <laughs> any interpretation. Kate sometimes oh. enjoys my line readings and sometimes gives me notes. No, I, I love them. That's why I skipped the question. I really wanted to hear you ask that one. Um, I think the thing that comes to mind is I was checking. There's this um, like 20 year, 21-year-old phenom uh, jacob collier mm-hmm. i don't know if you've come across him he's this Mm-mm. british kid uh who's uh, really a pretty phenomenal talent and um i was checking out one of his tracks recently and it's, uh, he also makes these great videos because he plays every instrument um and, oh i have seen his youtube videos yeah he, he's pretty amazing he's ridiculous yeah. talented yeah he's insane um but one of his tracks he modulates by a quarter tone and that was definitely, a, 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 you know, in a positive sense, it was an oh my god moment. It was like, whoa, you know, I mean, this is something that I, you know, have have thought of trying to do, but I've never actually sat down and 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 made something that modulated by a quarter time. And he and he pulls that's it off really amazing. beautifully too. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's 
Incredible. My mind is blown. Um, (laughs) What what a great lightning round already. Okay, Dan, next question. What would you recommend as a great entry album or composition, just a great way in for getting into jazz or classical music? If someone comes to you and goes, I'm not, jazz isn't really my thing. You go, oh, you got to listen to this or, or you could take it the classical route either. Wow. Uh, well, there's, there's a lot there. Um, <laughs> I know. I know. It's it really a, depends on the audience, actually. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I'm a big believer in everything being contextual. Um, and that's, I think, one reason why I love improvisation so much is that nothing is right in general. Things mm-hmm. can only be right for a certain context. Yes. So, you know, there's a certain type of person where if they said they didn't like jazz, I might have to sit them down and, and play them kind of blue by Miles Davis, you mm-hmm. know, which is just I a. Yeah, it's just a masterpiece, and Mm -hmm. and I think it really encapsulates a lot of what jazz is about. But then again, it's also to a certain type of maybe younger person, it might strike them as old fashioned. And there's um, there's jazz that's you know that's really new and cutting edge, uh, but that connects to like pop music maybe in a really sophisticated way that might be a better way to bring uh, a younger person in. So you know, for example, um, Ben Wendell, who's a a good friend of mine, we made a duo record a few years ago. He has a band called Kneebody. Uh, that's probably like the best jazz rock band out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that might be another way to enter it. I mean, it's just, it just really depends who I'm talking to. I think there's there's a right way for, for everyone. Yeah. Um, Love it. We're down to our last question. Okay, sorry, this has been super light. This is like the, the least lightning light. round that you've ever done. Well. <laughs> I, I love it. it. We've been really digging in. It's so great. <laughs> um, give a shout out for a woman who is doing awesome things in jazz, who's maybe a little bit under the radar and can use a little more visibility. Okay. Uh, there's so many people that I could think of here. Um, this is pretty close to home. Uh, it's Camille Berthaud, who's a French uh, vocalist that I uh, I play on her record. Uh, it's, it's coming out earlier uh, next year on Sony. And she's just utterly brilliant. And, and I think really... Um, one thing I love about Jacob Collier we were talking about earlier is mm-hmm. that he's uh, he, he's tremendously successful, has a big following, but he's um, incredibly sophisticated. Mm. Uh, he, he's made the idea of, of deeply structured uh, and virtuosic music totally cool to a lot of people. And that, that's a huge accomplishment. And, and Camille comes from the, very much the same place. Like she got started getting famous because she would memorize and sing entire jazz solos like perfectly along with Hmm. the record and post videos of herself doing that so she she the big one the one that got her started was was she she sings john coltrane's entire solo on giant steps oh my goodness note for note and it's just like impeccable um (laughs) and she doesn't even look like she's trying i mean she's just very brilliant and she's done a ton of them and then she's also a really deeply creative artist who writes her own material and 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 you know i've worked with her enough at this point to know that she's really a creative badass you know one person who comes to mind is Anne Paseo um she's also French uh, and she's a drummer and composer in France and um just really badass drummer and at the same time um has a really strong creative vision uh and makes these great records with her original composition and her band um so I I could go on actually there's a a lot of them but maybe those are the two that I'll that's awesome thank you 
Yes. Yes. Dan, it has been so wonderful to have you on the show. And we encourage everyone listening to take a look at the work that you've put out and are continuing to put out. We just can't wait to keep following what you do. And if we have any listeners in the New York area, Dan will actually be playing on a concert that I will be at. So you can meet both of us. uh, December 6th, I think. 6th, 7th, something like this, up at Columbia at the Miller Theater. So if you uh, are listening to this episode early enough and you live in the tri-state area, Come hang out with us up at Columbia. All my, all my dates are at dantepfer.com. So uh, in case it's actually the 7th and not the 6th, <laughs> it'll say that there. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Awesome. awesome. Uh, thank you so much for joining oh, us. Thank you both. Uh, this has been really special, uh, really fun. And, and I love the line of inquire in your show. And, and I love the intelligence and the, the vibe that you bring to it. It's really beautiful. Well, thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much for uh, hanging out with us. It's been a blast. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.